This morning's message is entitled, Law or Grace. Law or Grace. And we're continuing our series in the, with the whole truth. The whole truth. What would you do? This is a question for you. What would you do? You're a pastor. And I know some of you just love that. You're a pastor. And a couple comes to you and they're seeking your blessing on their marriage. Now, both are divorced, previous spouses. The circumstances of her divorce seem to be pretty straightforward. However, his has been messy. He's been involved with another woman. Happened several years ago. Now, both regret the path that they took, and both have renewed their relationship with Jesus Christ. Which should be applied, grace or law? Grace would de-emphasize the past, and law would emphasize the previous marriage and not potentially allow remarriage. Another question, what should a church do? This one we can kind of get our heads together on. What should a church do? People who haven't been attending church for a long time, they start to come back, praise the Lord, but they're not making any changes to their lifestyle. They still pursue typical status symbols and they, they don't think much about the little small deviant indiscretions that they still practice. Question, should the church offer grace to receive them back or should the church insist on law so that changes occur in their life or should both work together in some happy way? When we talk about God's grace, and I want to do that for just a moment here uh, this morning, when we talk about God's grace, it is something that should never be underestimated or undervalued, even though uh, totally undeserved by grace, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ offers salvation from condemnation and from destruction, salvation to eternal life. By grace, our identification with Jesus brings freedom and life with God. By grace, we partake joyfully of the Lord's Supper, and with astonishment, we sit in loving fellowship with the King of the universe. This is grace. This is what grace, God's grace issues to you and to me. We have received all things as a gift of God's grace. But there's another theme in the Bible, and that is God's law. God's law. Both Testaments, the Old and New Testament, tell of the importance of keeping and fulfilling God's requirements for a holy life. And so the question here this morning is, how do we reconcile the gift of God's grace with the requirements of keeping God's holy law, the Ten Commandments? Now, nothing in our faith is more important than a proper understanding of how grace and law work together. It was Martin Luther who said, virtually the whole of Scriptures and the understanding of the whole of theology depends upon the true understanding of the law and the gospel, you see. That's what he said. Over the last uh, couple of months, we've been talking about keeping twin truths of the Bible, twin truths of the Bible in healthy tension to each other, much like the strings on a stringed instrument. These truths don't, uh, aren't opposed to each other, we don't pit one against the other, or we emphasize one over the other to the detriment of the other. And this is not merely a theological struggle that we go through from time to time, but a struggle to maintain that healthy tension in our daily walk with Jesus Christ as well. So, as we've been discussing this topic, we've really been discussing the grace of God. We've been discussing the grace of God. Grace is the key that helps us deal with these tensions like faith and works, pride and humility, strength and weakness, great or slave. It is what allows us, grace is what allows us to be honest. It allows us to deal with our problems and to progress beyond our failures. Essentially, grace is the starting point for the Christian life, for you and for me. Be that as it may, few words are repeated more and understood less than grace. If it has any meaning to the average churchgoer, grace refers to the free gift of salvation that God offers humanity. That's how we understand grace. It's God's free offer of salvation to humanity. And as important as that is, and it's essentially important, it's, it's very important, 
Grace is much more than just entrance into your saving relationship with Jesus, entrance into faith. Now, I understand, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but I understand the word, uh, the, the Greek word we translate grace, which is charis, charis, was used to refer to anything that causes people to rejoice. It carried the connotation of beauty and of kindness, charm, favor, and even gratitude. Other words, like joy and gift, are based on the same root. In the Old Testament, there are two Hebrew words. That's the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there are two Hebrew words that express the idea of grace. The first one is hen, not uh, like the chickens that lay the eggs, but H-E-N, hen, usually carrying the connotation of favor. The connotation of favor, it expresses the attitude of a superior to an inferior, as in the case, for example, of Moses. When he addressed God, he said, if I have found favor in your sight. Now, that's hen. Another word is hasid, hasid, which is usually translated loving kindness or faithful love, faithful love. Hasid assumes the existence of a covenant such as that which was made between David and Jonathan and between God and Israel, between God and you and me. Together, putting these two words together, hen and his seed together, these two words present grace, and we're going to have it up on the screen for you, undeserved yet unswerving love of God. That's grace. Undeserving, unswerving, faithful, the love of God you see. Grace is, first of all, God's unmerited favor toward you and toward me. If faith points to the response to God's covenant, grace points to God's action toward establishing the covenant with humanity. But it would be wrong to think of grace as an attitude of something that is separate from God. Someone said something pretty powerful. I'm going to quote it for you. He said, grace is not something God gives us, but God giving us Himself. God giving us Himself. Grace is, goes on to say, God, grace is God Himself in active goodwill toward humans. It is nothing less than the power of God at work uh, on our behalf or for our benefit. That's a pretty good, uh, pretty good definition, I would think. And so clearly, as so clearly expressed in Jesus' parables, God is like the shepherd who goes out to look for the lost sheep or the father who runs out to meet his wandering prodigal son who's returned home. God's astounding reception of us is modeled in Jesus' association with tax collectors and with prostitutes. The message of the Bible is that God acts this way just because He's that kind of God. There is nothing in the people, be they prostitutes or be they Pharisees or religious leaders, that causes that choice. I want to take you in the Bible to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7 and look at a fascinating couple of verses here with me. Deuteronomy chapter 7, talking about why God chose Israel as His favored people, if I, if I could put it that way, His chosen people. You'll notice it has nothing to do with the people themselves. It's all God. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 9 the Bible says, the Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number. You weren't mighty than other, the other people. For you were actually the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because He would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and those who keep His commandments. In other words, grace is initiated by God and it is simply an expression of His nature. I like what the book Ministry of Healing, page 161, has to say. Grace is an attitude of God exercised toward undeserving human beings we did not seek for it, but it was sent in search of us. And God rejoices to bestow His grace upon us, not because we are worthy, but because we are so utterly unworthy. And I love the last sentence. Our only claim to His mercy is what, friends? Our great need. 
That's our only claim to God's mercy. You see, the ultimate revelation of God's grace is, of course, Jesus Christ. The incarnation of Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's grace. In Christ, the grace of God, as the Scripture reading stated, has been lavished, poured out without measure upon undeserving human beings, you and me. And there are no limitations to who may receive this grace. We either take it as a gift or we don't take it at all. As James Moffat said, think Moffat translation, he put it, all is of grace and grace is for all. Grace is for all. What we find in grace is a power in three areas. What we find in grace is a power, we'll put them on the screen for you here, for grace is a power that redeems our lives, redeems us, Christ buys us back, bought us back with his sacrifice on Calvary. So in grace we find a power that redeems life, that establishes a saving relationship with, with God, and thirdly, renders each one of us fit for service and for eternity. That's grace. Grace redeems us. Grace establishes us in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And grace renders each one of us fit for service and fit for eternal life. That's grace. And that's God's grace. Over in uh, the sixth volume of the Testimonies, page 268, we have this quote we're going to put on the screen for you here. I'd like to read that for you. It says, We owe everything to grace. We owe everything to grace. We're going to put it up on the screen. I think it's coming. I think it's coming. We owe everything to grace. Maybe we didn't put it on the screen. Here it is. We owe everything to grace. Free grace. Sovereign grace. I want you to catch this. We owe everything to grace. Free grace. Sovereign grace. Grace in the covenant ordained our adoption. Grace in the Savior effected our redemption our regeneration, our adoption to the airship with Christ. Man, grace is a pretty powerful thing. Grace just doesn't welcome us into the family of God, but regenerates us and changes us and prepares us for a life with God forever. That's grace, you see. One of the most amazing things about Jesus is the way that he enabled people to tell the truth about themselves. That's what grace does. Grace allows us to face the music. Grace allows us to face the truth. Paul, the Apostle Paul, found uh, his encounter with grace that allowed him to confess his persecution of the church of God. How easy would it be for you to admit that you had a short stint in the penitentiary? A family, your family had simply failed, uh, or you were deficient in a particular educational career. It would be an embarrassment for most people to share that with other people, but what happens if you've met Jesus Christ? What happens, friends, if you know that your sins have been forgiven and by God's grace you've moved past those failures and perhaps you went back to school? Wouldn't it make it easier for you to effectively relate to people because of those experiences? It's now no longer what happened to you in the past, it's what Jesus saved you from and what he's doing for you now and he will continue to do for you into the future. That's grace, you see. Our fear of being exposed, we often hide the truth about ourselves. We don't want to risk being rejected. We want to be liked and we want to be accepted. Imagine Peter with me for a moment. It's the night Jesus is there standing before Pilate. He's, he's being tried for crimes he didn't commit. Jesus' arrest. And as Peter moves around that courtyard, <clears throat> he's, what is he trying to do? He's trying to avoid recognition and he's trying to avoid any physical harm to come to himself. And some of us, some of us perhaps behave in the same way, hoping beyond hope that our weaknesses and that our failures don't get recognized. God's grace gives us the freedom to pull off the masks. Think of John Wesley with me for just a moment, if you would. He was a part of a spiritual movement. You know John Wesley, the founder of the Wesleyan, the Methodist Church. John Wesley was a part of a spiritual movement while he was a student at Oxford University in London. He most regularly, he met regularly with his friends. They studied the Bible, they prayed, and later he was sent as a missionary to Indians here in the United States, over there on the East Coast in Georgia. The truth was that he was ill-prepared and he failed. And he wrote these words, I went to America 
to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? He was honest. What if Wesley had tried to fake it and appear spiritual? What would happen if he tried to fake and appear spiritual? He would never have allowed the Moravian Christians to lead him to faith, and would the world would have been, oh, what can I say here? The world would have been much poorer without John Wesley's existence. You see, God knew the truth about John Wesley, and he knows the truth about you and me as well. He values us nonetheless. He woos us, and he desires us to be in a saving relationship with him. Now, we would make a big mistake, however, if we thought of grace as merely our initial acceptance by God and the forgiveness of sins as wonderful and as powerful and as liberating as that is. Grace is the starting point. Grace is present at every point along the way in your journey with, with God, and grace will be there at the end. I want you to turn there with me to Romans chapter 5, over to the New Testament, Romans chapter 5. I want to read verses 1 and 2 with you here. Someone put it this way, and I like it. And it, uh, it is based on these words here in Romans. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Grace is, is your starting point. It's present all along the way and is there at the end. And, it was, and, and this fellow put it this way. He said, grace is not just the threshold by which we enter into salvation. Grace is the whole house. Grace is not just the threshold by which we enter into salvation. Grace is the whole house, you see. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, the Bible says, Paul writing, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have what, friends? Access by what? Faith into this grace, you see, in which we wear stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Did you notice those words? Notice that. Through Jesus, we also have access by faith into grace, which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Grace initially is, uh, essentially is the sphere in which each one of us live, Christians live. All our lives as Christians is to be lived in the presence of an active, a loving, a caring God. The same power that affects our entrance into faith is the same power, the power of grace by which you and I live and move and have our being. Grace. It's no accident that Paul begins and he ends every letter with, referencing to, with reference to grace. In effect, Paul underscores that all of life is to be lived within the parameters, within the confines of God's grace. When Paul encountered, for example, his thorn in the flesh, the message was, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. That's what Jesus said to Paul. The whole Christian life is described, according to Paul in Romans 6 verse 14, as being under grace, under grace. And Paul and Barnabas, as they were traveling around visiting the Gentiles and preaching the Word of God, they urged converts to continue in the grace of God. So grace is not just something that, that, that meets us at the beginning of our journey, draws us, woos us to the, to the side of the Savior, you see, causes us to repent of our sin, turn from it, and enter into this relationship with God. Grace is with us every step of the way. Powerful stuff, isn't it? Powerful stuff, wonderful stuff. God is good. Grace is what we all need. Grace is what we all need. If the world were my audience, and there would be one thing that I would want to get across, and that is the message of God's grace. You know, some people have a pretty high estimation of their own abilities and they seek to chaff or chafe others as they try to prove themselves. There are others who lack confidence to the extent that they uh, fear trying new things or even entering into a ministry that God might be calling them to. Sometimes they might feel both ways at the same time and I think we're all very familiar with those types of feelings. But grace both humbles us and grace empowers us. When God makes us His children, it brings with it a power for successful Christian living. Here is the foundation for living, God's grace. We are enabled to stand because of the gift of God's amazing grace. What we are, we are by the grace of God. Grace, therefore, produces humility, 
It produces confidence, provides freedom and release from sin, but grace also challenges us to strive and to move forward. And grace is both gift and responsibility, all in one. Grace is the essential ingredient that makes everything happen in your experience with Jesus Christ. You've got to say this morning, thank God for God's grace. Thank God for God's grace. Now, occasionally, you meet somebody like this. They, uh, they either haven't been to church for a number of years or they're chafing at a specific command of God. And they respond, well, I love God. You know, I gave my life to God maybe five years ago, 10 years, 20, 30 years ago. He understands me. He knows my heart. He accepts me just the way I am, whether I'm doing everything He wants me to do or not. You know, there's a danger in having a superficial understanding of God's grace. People hear the message about grace and they draw wrong conclusions about it. On hearing that salvation is a gift and cannot be earned, people have said, well, fine, I'll take it. Thanks so much, God, I'll see you in heaven. And then they just move on with their lives as if there's no change that needs to be affected in their lives. There's nothing that changes in their hearts, you see. People have made their decision for Jesus and have gone on living as though nothing has happened in their hearts and in their minds. Nothing has changed to suggest that Jesus Christ is now Lord of their lives. Cheap grace. Cheap grace. That's the expression that was made famous by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Cheap grace is grace without cost. Cheap grace is Christianity without discipleship. Cheap grace is faith without following in the way of the cross. By the grace of God, but the grace God shows us is costly. It was costly for him because it sent his son to Calvary's cross. Grace received by us is always costly, always costly, for it will not leave us where we are. Grace comes as, a lim- as, as, as limitless forgiveness, but also comes with, with it limitless demand and limitless power to meet the demands of God. Bonhoeffer, he learned that truth when he, put, he was put to death in a Nazi concentration camp. Grace. If we're to avoid cheap grace, our acceptance of grace must be accompanied by three things, and we'll share these with you here. Number one, obedience. Grace, God's grace, must be accompanied with obedience. From Genesis to Revelation, the message is the same. God's people are an obedient people. God's people are an obedient people. As strange as it sounds, they are to be perfect just as our Father, just as our Father in heaven is perfect. These statements are not intended to drive or drive or encourage someone to perfectionism. They simply mean that we are God's people, and as God's people, we are to reflect His character, His goodness, His grace. And as Bonhoeffer sums it up, he says, only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. So belief in Jesus, grace, the grace of God works in us, obedience. The second thing to avoid cheap grace, uh, grace works in us, gratitude. Our obedience, as all other Christian acts, has its foundation in gratitude. Everything in the Christian life flows from true gratitude to God. In fact, the uh, Greek word for grace is also expressed as thanks. For example, although there's not an English translation of the Bible that can show it, Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 2.14 where he says, thanks be to God, uses the same Greek word, charis, which is the same word used for grace, you see, and it's usually translated for grace. In other words, thanksgiving, thanksgiving is the response in the heart of a person that recognizes and values what God has done and is doing to redeem and save them, you see. That's the basis of thanksgiving. In the the New Testament, religion, as someone said, religion is grace and ethics is gratitude. I like that. That's the second thing. To avoid cheap grace, grace must come with obedience. Understand that grace comes with gratitude. And thirdly, thirdly, grace, we are stewards. We need to remember that we are stewards of God's grace, that we are to extend God's grace to others. 1 Peter 4 and verse 10, Peter says that we are stewards of God's grace. Just as grace is the power of God at work in our lives, so it must be the power of God working through our lives. Grace is not passive. If it's being received, it must be expressed. The same forgiveness and love God gives us is to be mirrored in and through us. Grace brings largesse, largesse, that keeps us from being small in our giving to God's work and the treatment of other people, especially those who are in need. You see, when grace has changed and transformed our lives, 
and it becomes the basis of our worship through thanksgiving. And it is extended by us to other people, then, when we, then we will have avoided cheap grace. That's God's grace. Brings obedience, brings thanksgiving, and it extends itself to others. But how are we to be obedient? How are we to be obedient? What are we to be obedient to? How do we show our gratitude? What do we extend to others? In answer to these questions, we cannot ignore God's holy law. Now, not a few Christians have had a very hard time understanding how grace and law fit together. One is a gift and the other is a, it appears, a requirement. We have seen that faith in, our previous, in my previous message, that faith necessitates good works and obedience. But do Christians have to follow the law of God? The subject has bothered a lot of Christians. It's a strange phenomenon when you run into somebody and they're singing free from the law, oh, happy condition, while the psalmist declares in Psalm 119, 97, oh, how I love your law, I meditate, it, meditate on it all the day. How is it that many Christians have a negative view of God's law? How's it possible? How did we get here? Now, certainly, some of what Paul has written regarding the law has been unfortunately misunderstood to mean that we are no longer under the obligation to obey God's law. Preachers have preached it, parishioners have believed it, and they've shared it with others. But that can't be right. That can't be right because the same Paul, under the same inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote in Romans chapter 7 and verse 2, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Either Paul is bipolar, which obviously can't be the case, or many have misunderstood two simple things. One, the proper role of the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and secondly, two, that which is typically termed the law of Moses is thought to be the same as the Ten Commandments, God's law. Now, the law of Moses, we'll just kind of deal with this one up front here, the law of Moses, however, is not the same as the law of God, amen? We know that when we study the Word of God, if we were to stack up what we learn about the law of Moses and we put it next to the law of God, we realize that the law of Moses was handwritten, it was written by Moses. But the law of God was what, friends? Written with the finger of God, that's right. Uh, the law of Moses was made up of ordinances, made up of ordinances, a lot of those had to do with services at the sanctuary and the, and the types of offerings that people were to bring and the killing of lambs and goats and turtle doves and all of those types of things. Moses' law was handwritten. It was made up of ordinances. It was placed into the side of the Ark of the Covenant. It was given after the entrance of sin and it ended up, it ended when Jesus was nailed to the cross. On the other hand, the law of God, the moral law of God, James calls it the law of liberty was written with the finger of God. It's made up of commands and promises. It was placed inside the ark of God. It is eternal. And because the law of God could not be changed or abrogated, it necessitated Jesus' death on the cross. That's the difference between the law of Moses and the law of God. And so we understand when we read about the law of God, we're not talking about the law of Moses, made up in ordinances, placed in the side of the ark, given after sin ended, when Jesus died on the cross. Let's take a look at what appears, though, because some people take some of the statements of Paul and they get all confused and discombobulated about what he writes. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5 when he talks about the law of God. Galatians chapter 5. Let's take a look at what appears to be contradictory statements by Paul regarding the law of God and see if we can make a little sense out of them. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13 and 14. Notice what the Bible says. This is Paul writing, and I'm over in Ephesians. That doesn't help. Galatians chapter 5, and we're reading verses 13 and 14. Paul wrote, For you, brethren, have been called to what? Liberty. We're going to talk about this next week. You've been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now there, Paul is propping up the law of God, at least the last six commandments on the two tables of stone. He's propping up the law of God right there in, in uh, chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Paul instructs Christians to fulfill the law through love and loving their neighbor. 
Now, a few verses later in verse 18, notice what he says. But you are led by the Spirit, you are not what? Under the law. What? Hang on a second. He says you're not, over the, you're not under the law. And yet, go over to Romans chapter 3, verse 31. Notice what he says. Romans chapter 3 and verse 31. He says, do we then make void the law through faith? And what does he say? God forbid, certainly not. On the contrary, we what? We establish the law. So he states that faith doesn't obliterate the law. It, in fact, establishes the law of God. And then we go over to Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. And then Paul sounds like he's flip-flopping and going back and forward. And he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but you're under grace. Sorry, right, Paul, which one is it? Are we to keep the law or to do away with the law? Are we under the law or are we under grace? What are you talking about, Paul? And so some people get all confused when they read these verses, and perhaps I've done that for several of you here today, and I don't intend to, but we'll take a look at this. To be under the law, and let me see if I can make this clear, to be under the law is simply to be under its condemnation. That's what to be under the law means. As a matter of fact, go with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And let's take a look here at verse 19 and 20. Paul just lists all these horrible deeds that come from the carnal heart. No man is good, he says. None is righteous, no, not one. And then he goes on to talk about all that a human being can do except it be for the grace of God. And then in verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are what? Under the law. Now who's under the law? If you're committing atrocities, you're committing crimes, you're murdering, What's going on? What, what does it mean to be under the law? You are under its what? Condemnation. It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. To be under the law simply means to be under its condemnation. Certainly, when a person trusts their life to God and receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are no longer under the law or no longer under the condemnation of the law anymore. They've recognized their need of a Savior. They've repented of their sins. They claim Christ's perfect righteousness. They are forgiven. They are justified. They are no longer under the penalty of the law because they've broken God's law. They are freed. They're no longer under his condemnation. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. I shared this uh, a little while ago. I had been given a gift. I was given a car when I was in college. And the friends that had given me the car in college lived in New Jersey. And I was living in Virginia at the time. And uh, I, I don't know, I ended up picking up the car and I was just so, I was, it, it was an answer to prayer. God knew I needed a car. I didn't know I didn't have the money. I was in college, didn't have the money to get a car. Needed to, to do various ministry things to graduate from college. I just needed a car and I prayed about it. I said, God, if you would favor me, but if not, I understand it's pretty, pretty, pretty tough thing to provide a car. Individual calls me and he says, I got a car for you. And it was an answer to prayer. So I, I go pick up the car and I'm elated and I'm ecstatic and I'm just driving, driving down the road. And I found my, find myself up on a hill and I'm driving down the road and it's, uh, it's got a, like a, uh, it's got the uh, median in the middle and it's cars coming up the hill and I'm going down the hill and it's a windy road. And I'm just cruising down that windy hill and I'm not paying attention to the speed. I'm, I'm cutting in close to the edge as I come this way, and I'm cutting in close to the edge this way. I'm not using my blink. I'm just cruising down the hill. I'm having a good time. God has answered my prayers. <laughs> and I see it down there, the red light special. Red light, blue light, blue light special. There it is, the blue lights of the police officer. The red light special is at Target. You've got to go to Target to get your red light special. But the blue light special, the blue light special, he was down there at the bottom of the hill waiting for somebody to pick up enough momentum that they would speed. And he pulled me over. Pulled me over. And I didn't know, it was my first time I was being pulled over in the United States, and I didn't realize that the police officers here are very serious. And I, <laughs> and I didn't want to be, I didn't want to stop exactly on the side of the road because I figured that uh, essentially if we stopped there, it could be dangerous for him and for me. So I did the courteous thing. I pulled down a street. I pulled into uh, a grocery store, I believe it was, and I parked myself there in the uh, parking lot. And he came over and he was mad. When you see the lights, you need to pull over right away, mister. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I just, and I explained myself and I didn't have a chance to explain myself. Let me see your license. Let me see your registration. So I gave it to him and I told him, officer, I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry and I apologize. 
And uh, he said, well, just wait a moment. So he went back to his car, and you know what happens back there. They, they make you feel very awkward and make you feel like you're about to have the book thrown at you, and typically it is thrown at you. He comes back to the card, and he has this funny look on his face. And he says, uh, so son, uh, where are you from? I said, well, I'm originally from Australia, because he recognized my accent. He said, I'm just a little confused. And um, he started asking me questions about where I was from and so on and so forth. He said, is this your first offense here in the United States? I said, yes, sir, it'll be my first and it will be my last. <laughs> and um, he said, because it is your first offense, I'm going to let you go free. And, uh, and I never got the police officer's name, but I'd be sending him checks every month if I knew his name and his address for, <laughs> for letting me go free in the amount that he would have charged, that I would have been fined. And uh, so when he pulled me over, and those lights were flashing. I was under the law. I was breaking the speed limit. I was under the law. I was under its condemnation. And then when he came by, and he said, you know what? Your first offense going to let you go free. Now I wasn't under the law anymore. I was under grace. I was under grace. And I'm not sure if it was just because he was gracious or confused because he was looking at my license and it was a Virginia license. He heard my accent. I was from Australia. He said, I said, I'm going to Pennsylvania from here and I'm driving in New Jersey. He was, he couldn't understand what was going on. So I'm not sure if it was just grace or confusion. But anyway, I think it was grace. I think it was grace. And he let me go scot-free. And so you know what I did, don't you? You know what I did? Man, he got back in his car. I put my Put, put my foot on that pedal, spun my tires, kicked up some dirt, took off. You know I didn't do that. I made sure my seatbelt was on, checked my rear vision mirror, made sure the one outside was fine, everything was right, sat up straight, took my hands in the steering wheel, and I slowly put my blinker on, slowly, slowly went out into the road and I drove off. And, uh, and now I was under the obligation, under the obligation of vindicating the good graces of that police officer. And that's how grace works and God's law works, friends. We've all broken God's law, the Bible says, for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. We are under the condemnation of the law before we come to Jesus. But we recognize that we are sinners. We recognize we've broken his law. We recognize that we need his saving grace. And so we come to Jesus and we hear the words from Jesus, son, daughter, you are forgiven. You are forgiven and no longer are we under the condemnation of the law. Now we are under God's grace. And being under his grace means that we are under greater obligation to vindicate the good graces of the great lawgiver of heaven and earth by obeying the law by his grace from now on. That's how it kind of all works there, to be under the law and to be under grace, you see. Uh, the misunderstanding. The misunderstanding of what happens to be, uh, appears to be negative statements Paul makes about the law, coupled with an emphasis on these statements, has resulted in many people, unfortunately, viewing the law as the opposite of grace, and therefore a completely negative and unnecessary element. We could take the time to talk about Satan's all-out war on the law of God, which is the impetus, impetus behind the diminishing of God's holy law today. But that message must be shared another time. The unfortunate consequences, however, we must understand, is a downplaying of obedience in the Christian church. But to correct this imbalance, we, must, we need to listen to all of what the Scripture has to say on this particular subject. We need to know the proper role of God's law. Someone suggested it's being proposed that, uh, that the law of God is actually an expression of God's grace. I think I like that. How about you? It's an expression of God's grace. I'd agree with that. There are many passages in the Holy Bible where the law can be seen as an expression of God's saving grace. What, what does the Bible say about keeping the law? It will add years to your life. It preserves you. It will give you wisdom. I mean, that's, that's a gift of grace, isn't it? all those wonderful things. The Israelites in the Old Testament didn't view the law as an oppressive burden. They, they viewed it as a gift given from God that was to distinguish them from the idolatrous neighbors around them as they obeyed God's law. So God's law, the role of law is an expression of grace. Uh, the law, secondly, doesn't come to us to invite us into a legalistic relationship with God. It, it's not legalism, but it is covenant. It is covenant. It is covenant. I think we're putting these on the screen. 
Through them all, the Lord didn't come as legalism but covenant. The Ten Commandments were given in the form of an ancient treaty, establishing a covenant between God and His people. Now listen carefully. The keeping of the commandments did not establish the covenant. God established the covenant by His what? Grace. He established it by His grace. The commandments told the Israelites, and they tell you and I to live, how to live within the confines of that covenant. The law specified what their and our attitude and our actions should be toward our neighbor. We need to keep in mind that the keeping, the keeping of God's law does not save us. Keeping of God's law does not save us. Nowhere does the Bible present a way of salvation by keeping the law. The Israelites, they were called to be the people of God because of His grace. They were to keep His commandments in obedience, in obedience to the covenant granted to them. That obedience, however, was grounded in their trust in God and His pledge to them. Salvation is always by grace through faith, and such faith is expected to bring about the fruits of obedience to God's holy law, you see. You see, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, and he asked Jesus, how can I inherit eternal life? What did Jesus say? You can't, you can't earn salvation. You can't do anything to earn eternal life. Is that what he said? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, if you want to have life, keep the commandments. He said, keep the commandments. Jesus was not suggesting that the young man could earn his salvation. Oh, no. Jesus was suggesting that obedience is the standard of salvation that can only be attained by his grace, you see. When Jesus specified, he got into it, he specified several of the commandments. He wanted to get to, to the law's intent with this young man. The young man had thought that he'd kept all of the commandments until he was told to sell his possessions, give to the poor, and follow me, obviously. He didn't love his neighbor as he himself and was not willing to. Nor had he fulfilled the intent of the law by demonstrating allegiance to God and following Jesus. Jesus, Jesus didn't use Paul's language in this story of faith and grace, but he talks about trusting in God and obedience to him, and it's all the same. It's all the same. The whole Bible can be understood as an attempt to produce proper obedience to the law of God. Jesus doesn't save us. His saving act isn't just forgive us forgiveness. He wants us to keep the law of God, you see, because that's the law of heaven. And he's preparing you and I for heaven and fellowship forever up there. Proper obedience always excludes legalistic observance. Rather, uh, it seeks obedience from the heart. Turn with me back to Deuteronomy. I want to show this to you. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 29. Notice, God has always sought for an obedience that comes from the heart. The rich young ruler wasn't obeying from the heart. He was focusing on the letter of the law. I've done those things externally, but when Jesus started to peel back the onion, so to speak, and get to the heart of the matter, the rich young ruler realized he wasn't ready, wasn't willing to give his all to follow Jesus and keep all of the commandments. The commandments, God asks us to obey from the heart. It's a heart obedience. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 29. Where are you? There you are. It says, oh, I love these words, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Do you notice the benefit of the law? It might be what? Well with them. Keeping the law is not a curse. Keeping the law is for our benefit. But oh, that they had such a what? Heart in them. A heart in them that they would obey me is what God said. Now, if the law is so good, how did it get such a bad reputation? The enemies of, enemy of souls has certainly been successful in getting Christians to use the law for wrong purposes. I'm sure you can think of laws today that have been subverted to something other than its original intention. Writing to the young pastor, Timothy, Paul warns him as one who was going to preach and who was going to teach the, the law and uphold the law. He said, but we know the law is good if a man use it lawfully. It must be used lawfully. The purpose of any law is to direct behavior. That's why modern laws have to do with actions. We would mock a modern law that tried to address our attitudes. Can you imagine having a law that says you've got to appreciate and accept and love the policies of the President of the United States? Just wouldn't happen, would it? But God's law, His heavenly law, directs both our action and our attitude. 
It directs both our action and our attitude. This is one of the roles of God's law. You shall have no other gods before me. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not covet. Run down that list of Ten Commandments and they all address attitude along with actions. They all address attitude along with actions. You, you can't really honestly keep the seventh-day Sabbath unless it's in your heart to do so. You can go through the, the motions, you see. But if it's not in your heart, and that's where God wants it, He wants it in our heart, you may not be a murderer, but if you hate someone in your heart, then you're just as bad off and you're guilty and under the condemnation of the law. The law of God is intended to help people understand attitude and how that attitude is to be put into action. <clears throat> God's law has unfortunately been misused by people who've forgotten that it directs both attitude and action. And, and this happens when people forget, people forget, or people do the following. Number one, focus on the letter of the law, using it as kind of a checklist. Okay, I've done that, I've done that today, I've done this today, very good, I'm all good, while disregarding its intent or its spirit, which leads to a life that is narrow, to a life that is cold, to a life that is exacting. And people also forget that it, uh, the Bible, the, the Word of God, the law of God, is, uh, the, the law of God is misused when people forget that it directs both attitude and action, when they focus too much on the spirit of the law, while ignoring its expressed commands, which leads to a life that is loose, that is sentimental, and to a life that is simply carefree. Now, some would suggest that the real problem with the law of God is not legalism because while Jesus rejected the legalism of the Pharisees, he never blamed the law for that. And that would be correct. But they suggest that the real problem with the law is that it enhances sin. Well, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, what did he write? Paul wrote that the purpose of the law was to give a knowledge of what? Sin. That's the purpose of, one of the purposes of the law, to give a knowledge of sin. And I wonder whether... I wonder whether that actually isn't such a bad idea. I wonder whether it isn't, it isn't just a bad idea. is isn't, isn't a bad idea. Such people do, don't, people don't want to know. People don't want to know sin, and so they cover their eyes. The law says, here's sin, and you've got it in you. I just wonder how many people want to walk out their door in the morning on their way to work with their pant leg tucked into their sock, and they don't even know it. But if they were to look into the mirror then guess what they'll see? They'll see that, they'll see that uh, pant leg tucked into their sock or, or, or something else, a couple of different color pairs of socks or different color shoes or whatever. The law, the mirror tells you the truth and the law of God tells the truth as well. Uh, we don't, don't, we want, don't we want to know what is wrong and what is right? Don't we want to know the difference so we can keep away from what is wrong? Uh, when did sin ever become uh, fun enough to play with? God wants us to know what sin is and that it's in our lives and He wants to get it out. It's only by His grace. The law of God can't cleanse us. The law of God can't clean us up. Can't do that, you see. Only the blood of Jesus can. Now, the same individuals, they suggest that the law incites rebellion because, you know, you know human nature, when you're told you can't do something, guess what you want to do? I want to do that very thing. And so, so people blame, blame the law because they feel it incites rebellion. And they use Paul's words in Romans 7 to justify that. Let's go over there, Romans 7, and I promise we're coming to a close here. Romans 7, there's just so much to talk about in this very important message, but we've got to talk about it. Romans chapter 7, we're getting to the close here. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 10, notice. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Oh, hang on a second, why would Paul be asking a question? Why is, is the law sin? Why would Paul be asking, why is the, is the law sin? Because simply, sin and law are so closely related in his mind. Sin and law are related in the same way in which criminal law and crime are related. Something is criminal only if a law depicts it as such. You break the law, naturally, you'll have the book thrown at you, see. So he asked the question, is, is the law sin? Certainly not, God forbid. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was also once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. It seems to me that the law is not negative. The law is actually very, very positive. 
In fact, knowing the law has tremendous advantages according to what Paul wrote here. First of all, in verse 7, the, the law of God is revealing. The law of God is revealing. Something straight discovers something that is crooked and a mirror reveals what we actually, what we really look like. Someone suggested the other day that uh, actually iPhones, selfies actually reveal the worst of you more than a mirror does. That, that, that may be true. That may be true. If a person doesn't have any need, they don't recognize that they're, they're, they're lost, that they've got sin, are they going to look for a savior? They're not going to do so. So the law is positive. It's happy to reveal to you the truth. Why? Because it directs you to the Savior who can save you from your sin. Also, the law of God is humbling. That's what Paul wrote there in verse 9. It makes a good man look bad, and that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. It brings charges. The law of God brings charges to us that we cannot escape except for the grace of God. The law of God causes us to flee into the arms of God's grace. I would suggest that the law of God is a good thing. Amen? Certainly. I want to share a quote with you from Great Controversy, page 468, and we're coming down the home stretch. Did I get that to you guys? Is that, did I put that on the screen? I may not have. I may not have. It's not there. So here we go. I'm going to read it to you. Without the law, men have no just conception of the purity, the holiness of God, or of their own guilt and uncleanness. They have no true conviction of sin and feel no need of repentance, not seeing their lost condition as violators of God's law. They do not realize their need of the atoning blood of Jesus. The hope of salvation is accepted without a radical change of heart or reformation of life. Thus, superficial conversions abound and multitudes are joining to the church who have never been united to Jesus Christ. Wow. The purpose of the law is to reveal sin, lead people to, to Christ where a radical transformation is to take place, you see. You see, when we use the law for purposes for which it was not intended, then all will be well. If we use the law for purpose for, for which it was intended, rather, all will be, will be well. But if we seek to use the law as a means of entry into a saving relationship with God, then it won't be. Frankly, a person doesn't come to God on the basis of, of his or her own effort in keeping the law. That law was not given as the ultimate answer to humanity. Who was given to humanity as the ultimate answer? Jesus Christ. That's right. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul said, the law is designed to help us and lead us to Christ, you see. By grace, Abraham was given a promise and he trusted God. That is, and always has been the way, only way, into a relationship with God. By faith, through grace. The message of the New Testament is that the fulfillment of that promise has been taken place in Jesus Christ. You see, the law functions no better as a way of maintaining our relationship with God than it does as a means of entering into that relationship. The means for both are the same, by grace, through faith, you see. When it comes to producing that which is right in our lives, the law cannot do the job. A GPS can tell you where to go, but you need something to get you there. What do you need? Well, if you're in your car, you're going to need gas. You're going to need gas, and if you're on your feet, you're going to need calories, something like that, at least. You're going to need it. GPS can tell you where to go, but it can't help you get there, you see. The law of God points us in the right direction, but it takes the miracle-working power of the Holy Spirit, that, that powerful, life-giving energy into our lives and beings by His grace, His grace that transforms and changes us, that will lead us to that destination, ultimately, you see. It's sad to realize that many Christians think the law belongs to another era. Therefore, it is irrelevant for today. And that, my friend, is heresy. In light of Christ's coming, we are to live the law by the power of the indwelling Spirit. Now, John Calvin, John Calvin, he referred to the third use of the law. He said, in addition to addressing both attitude and action and giving the knowledge of sin, he said, thirdly, the law is to profit the lives of the Christian by revealing the will of God and encouraging obedience. The third use, the third purpose of the law. And that was John Calvin, his third use. We cannot, as some Christians who merely quote Romans 10.4 that says Christ is the end of the law, end of the law we cannot conclude that as, uh, as, 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 as the law being done away with. We can't just conclude that. Paul wasn't saying that when Christ came on the scene, the law doesn't matter, it seeks to exist. He was in fact saying that Christ was the goal of the law unto righteousness for everybody who believes. Therefore, the law is not irrelevant 
for Christian living. Christ leads us to the, rather, the law leads us to Jesus Christ who alone can save. Paul wrote that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Spirit of God writes God's law in our hearts and in our minds. That was Romans 8, 4. In Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus said, only those who do the will of the Father will enter into the kingdom of heaven, you see. And then Jesus said in John 14, verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me, he will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself unto him. In the end, friend, there is no contradiction between grace and law when both are properly understood. Grace comes as a free gift, but it brings responsibility. Law, too, comes as a gift that is to be lived out by God's grace. Christianity has both the law of God and it has the grace of God. They can only be opposed to each other when one is misunderstood or misused. Law, taken apart from grace, leads to a cold, formal, lifeless religion. Grace, taken apart from the law, leads to emotional, sentimental, carefree religion. Friends, no Christian, no Christian may take God's grace and leave behind God's law. To belong to the kingdom of God is to be involved in, in living out and practicing the laws of that kingdom. No Christian deserves the name who is not demonstrating the power of God in their lives by obedience to his law. No Christian institution, whether it be a school or a hospital or a church or a business, deserves to ex exist except to the degree that it shows that it's, that it's changed, that it's changing lives, that its life has changed because of the grace of God. Show me a person. Show me a person who treats family, associates, people who are needy, especially those who you, a person believes to be under them. And I will tell you the quality of that person's faith. Tell me how an institution makes decisions concerning people and I will know whether it is Christian or not. Being Christian is not evidenced in what we say, the theology we develop, the books we read or the institutions we build. The evidence of our faith is in the grace of Christ, expressed in our lives, in our fidelity to God and His commandments and our service to mankind. In closing, I want to share with you a little story about a little man who had a big change in his life. You can read his story over there in the book of Luke. His name was Zacchaeus. He was a little man. And he heard Jesus was coming to town and he wanted to see him, but he couldn't see because of his stature and other folk were a little bigger than him. And so the Bible says he climbed a sycamore tree just so he could lay his eyes on Jesus. Now Zacchaeus, you know Zacchaeus, he was a lawbreaker. He was under the condemnation of the Lord. He was a thief. He was a thief. And he heard of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the work of grace did something wonderful and strange in his heart. And he wanted to connect with Jesus and he wanted to know that Jesus had received him. And when Jesus was walking with that crowd and under that tree, he looked up and he saw Zacchaeus there and he said, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come to your place and I'm going to eat with you. The Bible says Zacchaeus hurried down, brought Jesus, disciples, whoever was with Jesus that time, came to his house. And Zacchaeus looked at Jesus and he said, Jesus, I've given half of what I own to the poor. And everything that I've taken, that I've stolen, I've given back fourfold. And it was at that point when Zacchaeus confessed that he was in the wrong. It was at the point where true repentance had worked reformation in Zacchaeus's life. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today, today, salvation has come to your house. Zacchaeus was under the law. But he sensed his need of Christ. He knew he was a sinner, came to Jesus, confessed, repented. Repentance worked reformation. The man was a changed man. He was living now under grace. And it was revealed in his life of obedience. Was Zacchaeus a thief anymore? He was no longer a thief. Zacchaeus became an honest man. And that's what grace does. Grace gets into the heart of a person and changes them. Grace gets into the life of a person and causes them to follow and obey God's commandments and God's law. That's the purpose of grace, to transform us, to empower us, and to ready us
to enter into that place, that place where the foundation of that government is the law of God, the law of love, the law of liberty, where grace and law happily meet together, kiss together, work together. May that happen in our lives in preparation for that great day when Jesus comes back and ushers us in to that place where we will know no sin, we will know no death, we will know no disobedience. It will be glorious and grand just to be with Jesus, living his law that has been written on our hearts by his grace. Don't you want that experience? I want that experience as well. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.